Mike is South African. Can we all just give God a cheer for that? <laughs> because God is raising up South Africans that know stuff. So it's so great to have him. He's busy studying um, through Oxford, which, you know, just sounds so intelligent. Even if you're just studying cooking there, that just sounds amazing. Well done for doing that. He, um, he currently holds a postgraduate qualification in education from the University of South Africa and a postgraduate diploma in theology from Oxford. Are you in process of that? Oh, so he has. So Oxford says he's great. UNISA says he's great. Um, he's worked as a pastor for Common Ground, who, which is a church that we love and enjoy in Cape Town. And so we're just so grateful to have him here. Can you give him a hand? Thanks, Carl. Can I give you this? Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. It's very, very good to, to be with you. I've just flown in from Cape Town last night into, I think, uh, Joburg might be sunnier than Cape Town right now, which is, which is amazing. Yeah, it's looking very good. Um, all things are looking good. So it's good to be with you. As Carol said, my name's Mike Day, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> Mike Day. And uh, it's such a privilege to be with you. I'm not Tanya Walker, but uh, I'm hoping that uh, this morning I've got something to share with you that will encourage you, that will help us to see God better, that will take us forward in our faith. And, and for those of you that are, are seeking and are looking into the claims of who Christ is and wondering if you can take those seriously, I'm hoping this morning as well will be good for you. I work for an organization called RZIM, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and uh, we are kind of all over the world, based in South Africa and up into Africa as well. We've got amazing speakers in Ghana, in Kenya, in Uganda, Nigeria, and obviously in South Africa as well. So it's such a privilege to be a part of a team that's seeing God do incredible things all over this nation and actually up into this continent as well. God really is doing good things. And what we do is we go into places and uh, we essentially want to take people's questions seriously. We believe that a, a good question deserves good answers, thoughtful, reasoned through answers. Because questions oftentimes are at the roots of what keeps us from trusting God more deeply or actually, in fact, approaching Him and taking Him seriously for the first time. Questions are there, they're real, and they deserve to be looked at, deserve to be answered and well thought through. So we go all over the place, campuses, universities, uh, politics, government, uh, schools, wherever we could get invited to speak on questions that people have that are barriers to belief in God. Even recently, I was on University of Cape Town uh, campus, and uh, we often think as, as Christians, if you're a Christian here today, we think actually people are closed to the gospel. They're not interested in wanting to hear about who Jesus is, so we oftentimes keep our mouth closed. We don't want to offend anyone. We just think we'll hopefully just be quiet and let our example show them uh, who God is, which is great, but I was on campus, and uh, I was sharing the gospel with some people during orientation week just recently, and the first person I bumped into I asked him uh, what he believed, what he thought, and he said that he didn't believe in God, but he occasionally prayed. I said, okay, that's, that's interesting. Um, so when you pray, do you ever feel like your prayers have been answered? And he said, no, I don't feel like my prayers are answered. So I was wondering inside why he's praying if he doesn't think his prayers are answered and if he doesn't think God exists. But uh, nevertheless, he was praying and didn't think his, his prayers could be answered. So I said to him, have you ever prayed in the name of Jesus before? And he said, no, I've never prayed in the name of Jesus. And I said to him, well, if you pray in the name of Jesus, the Bible says that God hears us and will give us what we ask if we pray in his name. And he said, okay, I've never done that before. So I said, can we pray right now in Jesus' name? 
We're on jammy stairs on campus in the middle of thousands of people going between stalls, signing up for things. And he said, yes. And I thought, great. We're about to pray again to a God he doesn't believe in, but we're going to pray in Jesus' name and he's going to answer. And so I sat with him on jammy stairs and prayed in Jesus' name for him. It was an incredible experience. And went on for the next two, three hours sharing the gospel with people. Not a single person said, not interested, no thanks. Don't want to know what you want to say. And what I found as we've done this more and more and more is that it's not uh, people who don't believe that are closed, it's closed, it's Christians who are closed. We are the ones who are closed, they are the ones who are open and are thirsty to know who Jesus is. So can I encourage you, as you go from this place, your neighbors, your colleagues, your friends, your family, whoever it is, be open to sharing the gospel. And of course, as Peter, 1 Peter 3 says, we need to do that with gentleness and respect, but still we get the privilege of sharing the gospel with people. So that's what I do. That's the ministry and team that uh, I'm a part of. As I said, we deal in questions. And the question that I want to look at today is one that is hopefully going to speak to us. I think it's really relevant to the context of South Africa that we find ourselves in today. It's a question that's come up on the screen behind me. What is true freedom? What is true freedom? This is obviously a really challenging question to answer, so, and a difficult one, and maybe even a very sensitive one for a lot of us in this room. And so I thought I would start with a story that would help us to get into this. It's the story of the bagpiper. Has anyone ever seen someone play the bagpipes before? Anyone? Okay, great. Then you'll know it's quite a scene. It's quite something. So this is the story of the bagpiper. As a bagpiper, I play many gigs. Recently, I was asked by a funeral director to play at a graveside service for a homeless man. The departed had no family or friends, and the service was to be a pauper cemetery at a pauper cemetery in rural Kentucky. I was not familiar with the backwards and got lost, and being a typical man, I didn't stop for directions. I finally arrived an hour late and saw that the funeral workers were gone, and the hearse was nowhere in sight. Only the diggers and their equipment remained, and the men were eating lunch in the shade of a nearby tree. I felt bad about being late, too late, for the ceremony, and I apologized to the workers. I went to the side of the grave and looked down and saw that the vault lid was already in place. I didn't know what else to do, so I started to play. The workers put down their lunches and gathered round with their hard hats in hand. I played my heart and soul out for that man with no family and no friends. I played for that homeless man like I'd never played for anyone. I played Amazing Grace. And as I played, the workers began to weep. They wept, and I wept, and we all wept together. When I finished, I packed up my bagpipes and started for my car. Though my head hung low, my heart was full. As I opened the door to my car, I heard one of the workers say, I've never seen or heard anything like that, and I've been putting in septic tanks for 20 years. <laughs> Let's just say this bagpiper got it wrong. See, we might think that we've understood a situation. We might think we've fully grasped it, we've understood it, we've approached it from the right perspective, but if we're not careful, we may find ourselves playing a funeral song for a septic tank. We've totally misunderstood and misread the scenario. As in the story of the bagpiper, so too with our approach to many topics in life, right? 
we all approach things from different scenarios. We may not have messed up that badly before, maybe you haven't, just we don't want to talk about that too much. But uh, we approach things from different angles. We have different experiences of one event or one thing that's going on. Have you ever noticed that when you leave this place and you ask someone what they thought about the message, they will say and draw out something so different to what you saw and you drew out. Why is that? We have different experiences. We connect with different things. We can tell different stories of the one truth. And that's because we're different, unique individuals who approach things from our unique angles. For the plumber in this story, and for the plumbers, this was the most moving moment of their professional careers. But for the bagpiper, this was the most embarrassing moment of his professional career. To two totally different experiences of the one event. And when we approach freedom, it's exactly the same. It's so similar. We have vastly different experiences depending on what side of history we stand. On what side of history we stand. See, I stand here today as a white person. I can't get away from that fact as I engage with the topic of history and of freedom. I need to interpret history, and I do interpret history, whether I like it or not, from that point of view, from that social narrative that I've grown up within. I'm not imprisoned within that social narrative. We can hopefully, at a table of discussion, understand each other's different stories and experiences, but that is the social narrative that I've grown up within. I cannot get away from that fact. In this country, white skin wrongly afforded my ancestors and consequently me privileges, opportunities, and freedoms not open to all. So whether I like it or not, this social narrative affects how I approach this topic. But on the other hand, historical and social factors have meant that my black friends have often had a different experience of the same question and topic. And we need to say that up front as a fact and as a reality. We have to realize that. But whether black or white or pink or purple or whatever color we may be, freedom is one of the most basic, genuine, and deep human longings that we have. It's basic, it's genuine, it's deep. It's a longing in our hearts to experience, to know, to enter into freedom. It goes back from the earliest of times, the earliest of stories that have been told. I think of Homer's uh, story of the Odyssey a story of Odysseus who coming back from the Trojan War is trying to find his way back home, way back to freedom. It takes him 10 years to get home. It's an incredibly powerful story. All the way from Homer's Odyssey to Mandela's long walk to freedom, this has been a theme that has run through our history as human beings. We can't get away from it. I think of contemporary emphases on freedom. The American Declaration of Independence says that it's the inalienable right of every single person to have access to and experience liberty, life, and the pursuit of happiness. Enshrined in the American experience, the Declaration of Independence. Or modern human rights, which gives us 30 articles of human rights, like freedom of speech, freedom to practice your religion, freedom to be assumed not guilty until proven guilty. What about the ANC's Freedom Charter? drawn up in the 20th century. These things are, are shot through our history of human, as human beings, our experience and our desire for freedom. See, what's happened in the last while is there's been a movement from freedom as a good thing, as a valuable thing, to freedom as an ultimate thing. It's not just a good, but the good. It's become the ultimate pursuit, perhaps the only moral imperative that we have left, to be free, to remain free, without anyone telling me differently. 
Perhaps Elsa's song from the movie Frozen can convince us, if you're not yet convinced. In one of the paragraphs of the song, she says this, it's time to see what I can do. I'm going to spare you uh, my singing. The band was too wonderful. I'm embarrassed to sing. It's time to see what I can do, Elsa says, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. That's a children's movie. That's a children's movie with these, these lyrics in it. It's right there. I don't know if you noticed those. So we've got to a place where that can be sung and can be understood and can be agreed with. But also that these words by an academic today can be said. He said this, Ronald Dworkin said, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concepts of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mysteries of life. I was recently talking to a family member who I love very dearly. He's not a Christian. And I said to her, what keeps you from putting your trust in God? What's that one thing that you feel is a barrier to believing in Him? And she responded so honestly, I really appreciated it. She said, you know, I don't want to become a Christian. I don't want to believe in God because I'm scared that it's going to take away my freedom. I'm scared that it's going to take away my freedom. How many of us have that fear lurking within us? How many of us have spoken to someone who's had a similar response to that, a nervousness and a fear for whatever reason, that if they commit themselves to pursuing or even exploring Christianity or belief in God, that their freedom would be restricted and possibly even removed altogether? See, freedom defined in this way, as the way I've just described, sees Christianity as an enemy. But Jesus said, in John 8:31 If you hold to my teaching you are really my disciples then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free And he said in Luke 4:18 to 19 his mandate for his mission his mandate for what he was going to do on earth he said the spirit of the lord is on me he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So which is true? Is Jesus true? Is Jesus right? Are his words just nice to listen to and hear, but actually proved to be false? Or do we need to move beyond God and Christianity to find freedom? Which is true? Jesus or the narrative of today, which says we need to leave that aside in order to realize freedom? in our lives. I want to explore that today, that question, that idea. And let's pray as we get into that. This is not easy stuff, so we need God's help. Let's pray briefly. God, would you help us to understand this? Would you show us what it means to be people who live in freedom and to see that actually the central essence of Christianity is a release of the captives, is a freedom? Would you help us to realize that and to know that in our hearts today? We ask you, Holy Spirit, for your help. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. <clears throat> so this rejection of Christianity for the sake of freedom takes different shapes according to different cultures and experiences. And has, has different reasons at its center as well. 
There's two kind of narratives that I want to talk about today. There's the kind of Western cultural narrative, and there's the South African cultural narrative that I want us to think about as we think about this rejection of Christianity for the sake of freedom. In the Western cultural narrative, even if we don't necessarily, or if there's places that don't value Western values, the influence of Western values is all around through the internet, uh, all over the place, even if we were to look at places that are seem to be opposed to Western values, uh, like places like the Middle East, we see that through the internet and other means that even there's such a thing as uh, Muslim feminism because of what is going on, which, and that would, if you know anything about Islam, would be totally contrary to what Islam says about how things ought to be. So we're seeing there's influence all over the place, even if those values are not necessarily upheld as central to that place. There's Western influence all over the place. So even if we don't subscribe to those values and don't believe in those values or think that they should be, we should be wary of them, they are all around us whether we like it or not. And according to the Western cultural narrative, freedom is defined in this way. What I like, when I like, without anyone telling me differently, so long as it doesn't hurt others. What I like, when I like, so long as it doesn't hurt others. Freedom is envisaged as a society without God. God is a barrier to freedom. He's a restrictor of freedom. He suppresses any hint of freedom that there might be. So we need a society that exists without his presence at all. A really interesting book was written in 1973 by a guy called Ernst Becker. He call, it's called The Denial of Death. And he says that basically up until the 19th and 20th centuries, God has been central to most places, most cultures throughout the world. Most people have believed in some form of God or gods. This has been our reality. But in the 20th century, we've seen a, a almost wholesale rejection of God across the Western world, which has been fascinating because God was looked to as the source of life. That is, in essence, Becker's main point is we fear death and try to get to something that will enable us to transcend that fear of death. Historically, that has been God. But today, in the face of the rejection of God, what do we look to? in order to transcend, get above, beyond that fear of death that we feel within us. He says we do what we call transference. We transfer, transfer all our hopes, all our ideals onto something else, actually onto someone else. He calls it the romantic solution that we have developed. He says the self-glorification we need, we look for not in God, but in a person who loves us. What do we hope to find in this person? We want to be rid of our faults, our feelings of nothingness. We want redemption, nothing less. This is written by an atheist, an atheist philosopher who's assessing the situation here, and he's saying, actually, even though we've rejected God, we're looking for the exact same thing. We're looking for redemption. We're looking to be rid of our faults. We're looking to be seen as we are and accepted on the basis of what we are. That's what we're longing for, to be known, fully known, and fully loved. Author David Foster Wallace makes this point memorably when he addresses students at Kenyon University in 2005. He puts it really well. He says this, in the day-to-day -day trenches, trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism, him being an agnostic atheist himself. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, 
and you will always feel ugly. And when the time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. What's the problem with all of this? Well, Becker and Wallace conclude, they say, no human relationship, no material thing can bear the burden of Godhood. No material thing, no relationship can bear the burden of Godhood. They weren't designed to. They can't bear the weight of our hopes, our dreams, our desires, and that longing for freedom. So our, our replacement gods failed to provide the freedom that we're longing for. But still, we won't, we won't admit that in this culture. We try to fight on, and we've got three big punches left that we look to today. Three big punches that we hope are going to keep God at bay and keep us in this pursuit of freedom as what we want when we want. The first punch that we have today is the biological evolution punch. All over the universities, this is what we see. Richard Dawkins, who's one of the biggest proponents of this, he's a biologist, he was a professor at Oxford University. He says that all we need to know is this. We are machines for propagating DNA. It's every living thing's sole reason for living. That's it. Just to procreate, keep the line going, survive. Freedom, he says, is knowing the universe is not designed and has no purpose or meaning to it. And neither do we. We're not designed, we're an accident. We have no meaning. But if we are a random collection of atoms, you and me and everyone else in this world, if we're a random collection of atoms, the end result of a mindless, unguided process, why should I trust anything that my brain tells me? If the process that got me here was mindless and unguided, why should I trust anything that my brain tells me? Why should I trust anything that my brain says is valuable or true? Should those categories even exist if the end result of evolution is just replication and genetic survival? Why should we expect or privilege the outcomes of truth and freedom if the sole outcome of evolution is survival, if that's its only aim. See, this is not the aim of evolution. It doesn't care about these things. The evolutionary approach is a swing and a miss. What about the second punch? The second punch that we have today is, con is what's called consequentialism, which basically just means that we look to the consequences or the outcome of something as our only guide for what we should do. That's how we're gonna realize the right thing. That's how we're gonna find freedom. All we need to do to live the free life is to follow this saying, maximize your joy at every turn. Just don't hurt others. But focus on your joy. Maximize your joy. Happiness without hurt, basically. We often hear this today in very simple sayings. It's amazing how these big philosophies that we may never even have heard of and I hadn't heard of until recently can be captured in such a simple saying. A saying like, I just want you to be happy. That's consequentialism. Saying actually the only aim, the only th the outcome that should guide you is happiness. Do whatever it takes to realize that. That's consequentialism. But the problem with this approach is that it's so vague. 
Who gets to decide what happiness is? You know, Ravi Zacharias has once said, you know, in one society they say, love your neighbor, but in another society they say, eat your neighbor. Who gets to decide? Who decides what's most happy? Who decides what's the most free choice? How do we get to say that's right and that's wrong? This is good and that's evil. Who decides if for me this is the free, to, the free choice that I want to make? Who's going to govern that choice? See, freedom then becomes freedoms, plural. There's no one true freedom for us to walk towards. There are just many freedoms. We decide. It's simply a preference. But this quickly becomes self-preservation. I need to protect my freedom. I'm not so concerned about your freedom. I want my freedom. I want to make sure that I get what I want. And at its worst, this becomes a totalitarian suppression of freedom altogether. Isn't that ironic? That our, our decision to be free ultimately ends at suppressing diversity and freedom altogether. The ruling powers decide. The loudest voices decide. But we don't end up being free. So consequentialism is another swing and a miss. What's the third punch today? The third punch is what's called scientism. The belief that science has every answer that we might ever need. And what it can't tell us yet, it will be able to tell us one day. But we look to science and it will give us everything we need. The problem is, science only gives explanations on one level. For example, science can tell us that X amount of Africans feel Y about freedom, but it cannot tell us whether, they, whether what they feel about freedom is right or wrong. It cannot even tell us if freedom in all circumstances for all people is a good thing. This is because science is descriptive, not prescriptive. It cannot make value judgments on anything. It simply describes physical processes. It simply describes what is already in action and what's already, already there, but it cannot make value judgments on those things. It cannot give us a morality. It cannot, it cannot tell us that freedom is valuable. So this is another swing and a miss. So we've thrown our best punches, but still we don't have freedom. Still we don't have an explanation and a grounding for the freedom that we long for as human beings in our hearts. But this is not the only narrative. I think we can all relate to some of those threads, some of the, the threads of that Western narrative. But there's a South African narrative as well. There's also a rejection of Christianity in the name of freedom in South Africa, but for an entirely different reason. See, freedom is not defined as what I want, when I want in South Africa. It's defined differently. It's defined as being able to do what I want. Being able to do what I want. Even just having the choice, having access to make a decision that allows me to take a particular course. See, in the South Africa context, this means the freedom to participate meaningfully in the socioeconomic life of this country. Self-determination as a key to decolonization. Having a say in one's own life. The opportunity to define their own circumstances outside of historical contingencies. Free to be a human being. To have one's own personhood acknowledged and valued. Free to have dignity. 
That's the freedom that we want in this country, that many want in this country. But because colonial Christianity has historically led to the removal of these things and suppressed freedom, there's a questioning or rejection of Christianity altogether. So if this is you, if you feel these things deeply in your heart this morning, if even as I say that, you're frustrated and angry and feeling something coming to the surface, if that's you, can I just remind you this morning that God sees you, that he sees the unjust social narratives that are in this country still today. He takes an interest. He looks at you, and Jesus' words are for you. I have come to set you free. I have come to set you free. Both of these rejections of Christianity, on the basis of doing what I want when I want, on the basis of being able to do what I want, are based on the assumption that Christianity in its essence opposes freedom. But is that true? Is that a true understanding of what Christianity is? So we come to the third and final narrative, which is the biblical narrative. We've had the Western cultural narrative, we have the South African cultural narrative, and now we need to ask, well, what's the biblical narrative? What does the Bible say about these things, about establishing freedom in our lives and in our hearts? Well, firstly, we see that in Genesis chapter one and two, God exists and God creates. And he creates human beings in his image, equal with dignity, value, and worth. And secondly, we see that God has a particular way of acting in the world. And he acts in the world on the basis of two principles, love and shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word which simply means the functioning of all things in accordance with God's good design. Everything works as God intended it to work. And now, of course, we know that sin has marred that design. And so things do not work as God intended them to work. But how God acts in this world is to restore things to its original design, its original purpose. We see in the beginning in Genesis 1.28, what does God say to Adam and Eve? He gives them this mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This word fruitful means to bear fruit and cause to bear fruit. So what that means is that humanity is, to, is supposed to channel the wise stewardship of God over all the earth to bring about flourishing and liberation. So far from oppression and subjugation, Genesis outlines a God advocating for multiplication, diversification, and liberation. That's the God we see. That's the world that he has set up. That's how it was supposed to be. And this movement towards flourishing and liberation is crucial to the biblical story. Absolutely crucial. It's at its essence. We see this all over the place as the Bible moves across all the way through to Jesus. There are four words for justice in the Bible. Two in the Hebrew and two in the Greek. And justice forms part of the shalom, of things working as they're supposed to work. A just, a just society is how God is wanting society to be. There are four words for justice in the Bible, and they appear 1,060 times. Hardly any concept appears as often as this concept of justice. And this justice has four dimensions. I love this. First, deliverance of the poor and powerless from injustice. Second, removing domineering powers from the dominated and oppressed. 
Third, stopping violence and establishing peace. Fourth, restoring outcasts, excluded, Gentiles, exiles, and refugees to community. The four dimensions of justice that we see explicitly outlined in the Bible, God establishes these dimensions of justice because it's part of his character. It's who he is. The story of inclusion is the essence of the gospel. And anything to the contrary is false Christianity. Anything to the contrary is false Christianity. I mean, have a Christian face that people say this is what it is, but actually it's false. It doesn't have a Christian heart. And lastly, we find freedom when we live within God's good design. We find freedom when we live within this good design that God has given us. See, I think the problem is our definition of freedom. Our problem is our definition of freedom. Should it be what I want, when I want? Or should it be, be ab being able to do what I want? Or should it be something else? I want us to imagine something quickly. Let's imagine that someone sailed a ship down, what's this road? Doreen? 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 Doreen Road. Imagine someone sailed a ship. As you're leaving church today, you're trying to turn left and you saw a ship go past you. Uh, that would be quite a wild uh, experience, not something you would expect, right? I doubt the first thing that would come to your mind to say would be, wow, that looks like liberty. That looks like liberty. And as the person's going past you, they're saying, in the name of freedom, I, say, I sail this ship down Doreen Road. And you think, hmm, freedom, liberty, it doesn't quite look like liberty to me. It looks like stupidity, actually. Look how much traffic you're stuck in when you could just be on the open waters. Why do we think that? Because we know that the ship is free on the, on the high seas. We know that the train is free when it's on the tracks. Why? Because it's functioning accordance, in accordance with its design. So it is with the Christian understanding of freedom. We are free when we function in accordance with the designer's design. When we function in accordance with the designer's good blueprint for life. See, God's design is there to make us more free, not less free. Let's take, for example, just hypothetically that God exists, which I hope many of us do think, I think as well, you'll be glad to know. God exists. If God exists and he is the author and creator of life, surely he knows in his good design and in his wisdom how best it works. And we should go to God, this true and living God who created life and has the blueprint for life to say, how does this work? How do we best function as human beings here on earth today? He would have that blueprint. He would know full well. And so when God prescribes things for us, it's not to constrain us. It's not to repress and oppress us. It's to liberate us to live the most full human life we could ever live. When we function in accordance with his design, we find freedom. How do we know this? How do we know this, that we're supposed to be more free, not less free? God himself in the flesh visited the world. He was born into poverty, in a despised region under the boot of a colonial power. Under the boot of a colonial power. My time is telling me to stop. It's no freedom here. And he said, come to me. 
born into this, he said, come to me. I will give you rest. And the one the son sets free will be free indeed. How did he do this? Well, in the words of the great chief Lutuli, ANC president during the 20th century, the road to freedom is via the cross. This was Lutuli's response when the government put pressure on him to renounce his membership to the ANC and uh, dissociate himself with the um, programs that the ANC were running at the time. And he said, he wrote an article of principles called The Way to Freedom. The road to freedom is via the cross. It's so powerful. See, by becoming unfree and constrained to a cross, Christ gave us our freedom. See, in the Christian faith, we discover a God who works towards true freedom by giving us free access to himself through Christ. That's how we get freedom. And so what that means is that the heart of reality and at the heart of freedom is relationship. Relationship with God. True, open, free relationship with him. Truly seen, truly known, and fully loved. What we're longing for what Ernst Becker was describing, God is able alone to rid us of our faults. He is able alone to bring us to that point of redemption, to see us and to know us fully and to love us fully as we are. See, this relationship that is at the heart of freedom and reality was described by Augustine, one of the first great African bishops over 1,500 years ago as the essence and explanation of our deepest longings. At the heart of our longings for freedom is this longing for relationship, and that's exactly what God did in Christ. Augustine said this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. So Augustine had a, a serious uh, life of, of hedonism, of pleasure-seeking, up until the point where he encountered God. He had done everything, and yet he felt restless until he had encountered God, and he knew rest for the first time. So Jesus invites us to himself. He says, come to me, and I will give you the rest that you are longing for. I will set you free. I'll give you what you've, been, what you've been trying to establish so much in your own life by your own strength. I'll give you what you've been longing to establish but haven't been able to establish. I'll give that to you. I'll bring you rest and freedom in me. That's how we find freedom. Not by letting social narratives of the day constrain us and think that we have to set up a false dichotomy of either God or freedom. Freedom in God. Freedom in God. Let's not listen to the loudest voices. Let's listen to his voice. He's able to establish freedom in our hearts to bring us to that place. What I wanna do just in the last few minutes is, is to pray and ask that God would do this, that he would help us, that if some of us are feeling not free, some of us are stuck in really difficult scenarios where actually the road to freedom feels a bit like our own cross, that God would be able to speak to us and lead us. Can I ask us to stand for a moment? I want to pray for us. Let's pray together.
Holy Spirit, we welcome you now. Jesus, you said that you will give us a spirit who will be like living waters, flowing up from within us and bubbling up to overflow. Would you do that now? Come, Holy Spirit, in this place. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Would you come and bring freedom of God into this place? Can I encourage you, wherever you are, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, wherever you are personally, would you just open up your heart to God this morning? He's the God who leads us to rest and to freedom. You open up your hands and your hearts. Let him speak into areas that are feeling dark, that have felt overpowering in this season. Jesus said, those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but rather they will have the light of life. Jesus, would you set free this morning? Would you set free this morning? It's what you do. You've said to us that you as the Son of Man set free. And when we're free and made free by you, we are free indeed. Would I pray for all of those who have felt oppressed by social narratives that are being uh, not told truly, for those that have felt excluded and vulnerable, for those that have felt at a loss and at a loose end, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you meet them right now? Would you pour out your love into hearts right now? I wanna pray for those of you also who've never put your trust in Christ, or you're wanting to come back to trusting Him after some time away. Would you just pray a simple prayer, if that's you? A prayer of saying, Jesus, I put my trust in You. I've been looking to other things. I've been swinging and throwing punches and trying my best to make it on my own, but I'm putting my trust in You. If that's you, would you pray that simple prayer? Would you respond to His invitation to take up rest in His presence? I wanna pray for those who have been Christians for a while, but need to know deeper freedom in their hearts and lives. God, thank you that you are faithful to finish what you start. You never leave a project undone. You never leave it half completed, but you always finish what you start, always. It's who you are. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you, the faithful one, the only one who is faithful. And we ask that you would speak into our lives, that you would lead us into deeper and greater freedom in you. Lord, anyone that's oppressed or frustrated or not knowing how to move forward and they walk with you and feel stuck, would you speak to them now? Would you release that in Jesus' name? It's like God wants to do that this morning. If that's you, he wants to release you to trust him again, to follow him again. It's like the Lord's saying, don't stay static. Don't stand still, even if you need to crawl. 
keep moving with him. Keep moving with him. He is faithful to finish what he started. Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name that we pray. Lord, we want to thank you for what you did today, Lord God. Thank you for the wisdom you gave us, Lord God. Thank you for the insight you gave us. Thank you for the change that happened in so many of our hearts, Lord God. Lord God, we we want to commit to the things that you're committed to, Lord God. We want to be free like you've asked us to be free. We want to reveal you in a way that makes people long for the kind of freedom that we carry, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. And all of God's people said amen and amen. Can we give the Lord a hand? Thank you so much, Mike. Can we give Mike a hand?